Welcome to Give and Take, where yours truly, Scott Jones, interviews artists, activists, authors, and a wide array of other thought leaders that help make our world the interesting place it is. My guest today is Pete Enns. Pete is a biblical scholar and a professor at Eastern University. He's also an author, most recently, of The Sin of Certainty, Why God Desires Our Trust More Than Our Correct Beliefs, and The Bible Tells Me So, Why Defending Scripture Has Made Us Unable to Read It. He is also the co-host of a new podcast called The Bible for Normal People. I give you Pete Enns. Pete, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, man. So you have a new podcast, actually. You've ventured into the world of podcasting, and your podcast is called The Bible for Normal People. It is. Is it really new? We've had six episodes. At what point does it stop being new? This is a philosophical question here. I sold cars right after college, and I only did it for a few months, but every day I told people I was new because that disarmed them. Oh, good. And they I didn't expect anything from you. Right, they, well, they didn't think I was a predatory person that now knew I'm me. a new professor. I'm a new professor. It's exactly how you want to frame it. <laughs> so I was thinking about that. Like, when I think of normal people, mm-hmm. have you ever seen the show Goliath on Amazon? Nope. It's with uh, Billy Bob Thornton. Oh, yeah? And he's like this alcoholic, sort of washed-up lawyer, and he takes this client uh, because she's been victimized by this company that his old firm he helped found. It's like a mega death sort of awful corporate firm they're representing. And actually they wind up killing his client and he's, he actually slept with her the night before, which is great legal practice, but he, he's standing over her body and he says, and David took a smooth stone and he <laughs> slung Goliath. And he said, and then he's like, I, I just, that's the only thing I know from the Bible. And he only knows it because his favorite movie is Hoosiers. <laughs> Yeah. So I think of that as normal people. Yeah, that's a normal person. But, like, but you're kind of doing the Bible, though, I would guess, for reflective people that are thinking about the Bible. Sure, yeah. And so yeah, semi-normal, I mean by semi-normal that, people. All, yeah, all I mean by that is people who may not like be professionally engaged in this. Not, not scholars and not people who are, let's say, full-time pastors, but people who just have an interest in this and um, they have questions and they might not always have communities to discuss them. But p- people who are engaged, but not necessarily like all the time, but it's more like something that has been um, a problem for them, the Bible, you know, and, and they may have left the faith or left the church or just are sort of hanging out trying to figure things out, but they have a lot of questions that they can't feel they can bring to just anybody. So it's people like that. It's not, so in other words, it's having discussions, not with people who have expertise in, you know, the fine tuning ins and outs of like the study of the Bible or theology, but people who don't have that and um, people you would basically see in church on a Sunday morning who, Maybe, uh, you know, they don't have access to information. They're not, not like reading their Bible all the time. They're sort of maybe even don't like it, but they still like God and, and they want to think about these things and they have questions. So that's, that's sort of what I'm trying to do in, in, um, in the podcast and in everything, you know, my, my writing and, and all that. That's all comes together, I hope. And it seems like you guys are having a tough time getting good guests. I mean, like Rockwell, <laughs> Richard Rohr. You guys like, why don't you get a pro booker so you can actually get some people that, you know, people have heard of. I should, yeah, but but you know that's you know we're not gonna that's impossible to keep up that pace the whole time. But you know at the beginning we did want people that we liked and who we felt had a lot to say, and 
uh, you know, in, in the months to come, you know, we hope to have people on that maybe nobody's ever heard of. I mean, nobody's ever heard of it. People who have a lot of experience in this, maybe on on the front lines or, you know, soldiers with their feet on the ground who deal with this a lot and may have a different perspective, too. So, uh, you know, hopefully it's a podcast not just for the benefit of normal people, but that has, quote, normal people on as well. Um, but, you know, a lot of what we're trying to do is actually bring to a broader conversation people who do think about this all the time. You know, uh, you know, people, not everybody goes to seminary or gets degrees in Bible, but there are a lot of people out there who have a lot to offer the general population. And, and those are the kinds of people we want to have on to like actual scholars who can actually talk to people. So there are about seven of them out there. Right. I was supposed to scholars. That are, yeah, exactly. Do you think that's a challenge? Like for, for someone who's taught at a seminary, like academics, right? Academics, do their job, professional academics, by using idiosyncratic language to maximize difference. So, like, well, your view on the on the Canaanite conquest or Schleiermacher or, or Proust, and my view are irreconcilable. And here's why. And I've got a lexicon of particular terms. When generally, what yeah. people pastors are trying to do is generalists and use you know the broadest possible language right. to connect with the deepest parts of the human story. It seems like a weird fit, right? <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah, well, th- that's the challenge of scholars who are trained to use technical language. And, you know, the, the definition of technical language, at least as far as I'm concerned, is, you know, words or phrases that encapsulate a lot of complexity in and of themselves. There, there are whole discussions that have gone on that lie behind this term. And that's the, that's the stuff that, you know, normal people don't care about. And I don't blame them. <laughs> you know, it's not stuff that you sort of want to get into when you read books where every three words you don't understand. That's a scholarly conversation. But to be a generalist, I mean, that's that's another way of putting, I guess, what Jared and I are doing on the podcast is we want to bring those things in a non-technical way to people who I think would enjoy them, who might already know something about them but who just they're not into all the details and the nitty-gritty you know and and that's that's sort of the problem when you teach or when you preach and you expect the people to sort of come to you instead of you going to them <laughs> that's that's the obligation i think that people have who do this stuff for a living and um yeah and that's that's what we're sort of excited about that that's a fun thing to do hey, in your book the bible uh tells me so you you tell your story and you talk about how after you graduated Messiah College, where I didn't know you held the record for wild pitches, by the way. Oh, uh, and strikeouts. And strikeouts, yeah. That's yeah. impressive. I mean, <laughs> it's, you're running hot and cold. I mean, that's very exciting. That's, exactly, that's my story of my life. It's one way or the other, so nothing in the middle. <clears throat> you talk about how, like, shortly after college, you became a reader, that mm-hmm. all of a sudden you were this guy that was reading all the time, and you had this intellectual kind of awakening. I wonder in that book. I I I read that book recently. I can't say enough good about it. But it, you also do you see yourself now as a storyteller? Because you do such a good job, I think, at framing the biblical writers as storytellers, and, and I mean that in a very particular sense. And do, mm-hmm. is that are you seeing your own vocation that way too? Yeah, I'm trying to. Uh, you know, rather than simply disseminating information, but telling narratives either of your own or 
of the biblical story itself or of other people. You know, I think that's what people respond to. And I do. I mean, you know, when I when I hear a good sermon, there's usually a story involved in it. It's not just information passing from one person's brain to other people's ears. It's it's a story that brings context and livelihood to it. And I think that's very much our responsibility. You see my cat walking across the screen here? Very attractive cat. <laughs> I, I have two pit bulls that would do that if they could get on the table. They, <laughs> Probably. they really would, actually. Uh, sometimes they come down and just like lay on my legs when I'm recording. But I, right. Yeah, you, you also tell, I, I feel like in that book, your approach to the Canaanite genocide is one of the best I think I've seen. And I, I found it very moving. In it, you talk about Israel being in the position where God lets the child tell the story. And you, you tell a pretty moving story about your dad. Could you, mm-hmm. could you like share a little bit about your dad yeah. in, the, in the schoolyard way you talked about? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, you know, the, the idea, and I heard this from a seminary professor that the Bible looks the way that it does because God lets his children tell the story. We, they tell it from their point of view. And, uh, you know, we all do that. And, and as kids, you know, we talk about our parents, let's say, from our point of view. So, you know, when you have a, a, a second grader talking about her, what her mom does all day, it, it'll be told out of love and it'll have accuracies in it, but it'll leave a lot out and some things will just be misunderstood because the kids ate, you know, and, and does not understand the complexities of adulthood. And the story that I tell in, in the book is, you know, middle school, junior high school, schoolyard, where everybody's bragging about their dad. And they say things that may have like a hint of some, um, like accuracy in it. Like for example, um, you know, my dad was a great shot and he could, you know, shoot out the eyes of a sparrow at a thousand paces or something. Well, you know, I, my dad, I remember him work, winning a turkey shoot at, at uh, and winning, um, you know, a turkey for us at Thanksgiving one year because he hit a target and he was he happened to be the closest one. But that sort of develops into this great story. And you basically exaggerate and you brag about your dad in the schoolyard because you have to to get the point across. Right. Uh, there are ways of telling the dad story in the schoolyard. And you say things like, yeah, my dad lifted up the back end of a a Volkswagen or something like that. Or, you know, my dad did this, my dad, my dad is so strong, he could do X, Y, and Z. That's how you communicate love for the father in the schoolyard. You don't say things like, um, which are very true, uh, you know, my dad wore an apron and did dishes. Or, you know, my dad caught my throw up when I was little and and wouldn't let it get on the floor when I was sick in the middle of the night. Those things don't work in the schoolyard. That's not the way you tell the story. Although, you know, as you mature and become a father yourself, those are the things that actually stick in your mind as you have some maturity. And that's analogous. The reason I tell that story, it's, it's analogous to things like the Canaanite genocide stories in the Old Testament that the Israelites are talking about God in the way that conforms to the rules of the world that they live in, which is a tribal world. And that's the way you talk about the gods, and our God can beat up your God. And, uh, you know, that's how you show the supremacy of of the deity versus other deities of other nations. You know, so, and, and we'd never escape that. You know, there is no pure theology where we're no longer talking as children. We always are. 
and we don't see it clearly, but we're trying to put pieces together as best as we can. Do you feel like inspiration is a, is a better... I mean, I, I feel like in a lot of evangelical circles, right, um, inspiration is something that's on the front end, you know, a certain view of the Bible. It, would it be better off if inspiration was something like that came on the back end after you spent time with the Bible as a descriptive term of what it meant to engage it rather than a prescriptive, uh, you know, enter at the yeah. door price to engage it? <clears throat> yeah, I think, I mean, inspiration, talking about that, another way of saying it is just what is the Bible and how does it work and where does it come from and what we what do we get from it? And I do think that those things are perceived better at the end, you know, after after a lot of discussion and thoughtfulness over years with other people, rather than, okay, here's what it is, here's what you have to believe before you even enter the door. Okay, I believe that. And then you start reading it, and it's like, okay, <laughs> that stuff doesn't really fit with what I'm reading here, right? So, so you know, to, to define terms like inspiration or authority or revelation, very common words Christians use to talk about the Bible, I think that's something that can be more descriptive on the basis of what you're finding there, on the basis of how the Bible behaves, on the basis of what it says, rather than sort of an artificial fence you build around the Bible, and it all has to sort of conform to a certain way of being. And, you know, those are things that I think just perennially get Christians into trouble when they talk about the Bible. They come at it with a pre-made template of what this has to be. Well, if it's God's Word, it's got to act this way and that way and that way, like historically accurate, never contradictory, things like that. And you read it, and that's what causes people cognitive dissonance, because they're, they see the problems, but they're not allowed to talk about them. And they're, in fact, they're told that there's some lesser form of Christian if they do talk about them. And that, that's, that's a big shame. Yeah, it's, I feel like in a lot of your work, it seems like you're trying to get past an impasse where in one segment of the American church, doubt is demonized, right? And in mm. another segment uh, uh, of the church, it's valorized. Like if right. you're not doubting, cynical, sort of jaded, ironically detached all the time, you're not really mature. But right. it sounds like what you're saying is can we just humanize this stuff? Yeah, I, I certainly don't mean like, you know, what you're just describing that, you know, hey, it's great to doubt. We like don't – everything's cool. It's sort of like a sexy, trendy hipster kind of thing. And not that I'm against hipsters, but you know what I mean. It's just – it's sort of like, you know, look at me. I know you hang out in that coffee shop in Lansdale. I, I do. That's all I do is hang out in the coffee shop. Yeah, right. My coffee shop's like five feet away from here in my kitchen. That's my coffee shop. Um, but, you know, I, it's just, you know, I, I think that people sometimes valorize doubt. And the thing is, if you're actually doubting and struggling with God's absence, you're in agony. You're not going to go around saying, hey, look at me. I don't really believe this. That's actually very immature, in my opinion. And it shows that you haven't really suffered through the, the difficulty of, well, things that the biblical authors struggle through, whether it's Job or Ecclesiastes or Lament Psalms or somebody else. They're dealing with the real removal of God's presence and and the difficulties of believing in the realities of struggling with whether God is there and whether it even matters. Th those, are, those are things, those are inevitable in the Christian life, in my opinion, but they shouldn't be sought after, and you certainly don't brag about it when it happens. You know, it's, it's no different for me than valorizing certainty. Yeah. You know, I'm always right, and, and, and I know that I'm right, and this is the way it is. Well, that's, that's, I think that's an immature version of Christianity, but the other side is just as immature. I, I, Paul Zoll, who's one of my favorite theologians, uh, last year we had a conversation. He said that 
the way he would translate the Reformation, great insight of Sima Eustace et Peccator, is that um, I can be at the same time loved and human. Mm-hmm. And is that right. something like your approach to the Bible is like, we can love it and it can actually be a human artifact, inspired artifact, but one that lives in the world where we live, uh-huh. not some removed kind of uh, docetic or, you know, fake kind of right. artifact. It's really real. Yeah, and I hope that is one thing that people are getting from some of the stuff that I'm doing. It's not it's not anything other than if you want to valorize something, valorize the humanity of it, which in the Christian faith is not a bad thing. Right? You have this merging, this paradoxical joining of divine and human. That's sort of the point of all this for Christians. And you know, to think of the Bible as anything other than that as sort of a book dropped out of heaven that gives you all these answers from some above level, rather than actually depicting the very same struggles that a lot of us have with with our faith. That's, you know, that that is to humanize the Christian faith, which is not knocking the Christian faith, it's actually glorying in the Christian faith. It is about humanizing us, fully human, wholly, completely human, like Jesus. You know, one way of describing Jesus is the most human person that ever lived, most truly human, you know, the second Adam, all that kind of stuff the New Testament talks about. And I think that's, you know, when we sort of interpret the faith and the Bible especially as um, somehow being able to evade the messiness of the human drama, I think we sell it short. We don't defend it that way. We're actually selling it short and because we're dehumanizing it. Yeah, do you um it's really interesting cuz the way you write about chronicles and kings you sort of say like kings is this kind of story right that where well Israel's in exile cuz they kind of deserve it <laughs> and chronicles yeah. is one where uh there it's it, the story is framed differently to give hope and it, I almost heard like law and gospel, like there's just kind of different ways. They're both are the mm-hmm. Bart would say both are the one word of God. But you know, do you think Nietzsche said that psychology would replace theology as the queen of the sciences? And like most everything he predicted, he's usually right. Yeah. Part of what I think is interesting about your writing is that is this a window into reaching people that need faith and communities of faith who are so aware of their own multiple stories they tell themselves just to get through the day <laughs> you know it was mm-hmm. in the big chill i think jeff goldblum says you can get through a day without food or without sex but you can't get th- through a day without a good rationalization and so at some level <laughs> you sort of you sort of talk about yeah. how the israel or the people of god are no different that it's a complex messy story that god enters into and that's why you have these kind of different witnesses and voices just like we all have different witnesses even in our own head <laughs> to right. the story right. that we live in because circumstances change, experiences change, you know. Um, when Chronicles writes its history of Israel, they've been, you know, the, 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 a lot of time has passed since Jerusalem fell, and they're back in the land, but things are not going well. They don't have their king on the throne. They're still subject to Persians and then Greeks. And, you know, it, it, the question that that those two books are asking, First and Second Chronicles, <clears throat> are, okay, 
how much longer do we have to wait? Why are we still being punished for something that, you know, three generations ago or five generations ago or more happened? Why is it still not rectified? What's going on? I think that question actually drives a lot of Jewish theology before and around the time of Jesus and Paul. Uh, that's a different question than they were asking earlier when the exile was very much fresh in their memory and and they were trying to account, well, what did we do to get into this to deserve it, right? That's why the one story is a bit of a downer. Samuel and Kings and Chronicles is a little bit more of a sermonish sort of pep talk about holding on to the future because God is still faithful to you. So they tell the stories differently. And, you know, experience dictates how you talk about God. And I, I think that's anathema to a lot of Protestants, at least that I know, where, you know, knowledge of God is more objective and it doesn't change with our circumstances. No, how we perceive God is absolutely affected by our circumstances. To deny that is to deny the humanity of all this, what we were saying before, the humanness of it. And, And the Bible itself bears witness to how human circumstances affect how you talk about God and about anything else. Yeah, I feel like, so stereotypically, right, in, in a sort of traditional conservative evangelical way of framing what the Bible is, it's something like this received supernatural revelation that's in Scripture written down you know, from God to us. And a sort of stereotypical, more modern liberal approach would be, well, no, it's the witness of the evolving religious you know, consciousness of the people that are writing. And I feel like what you're saying is the answer is yes. Yeah, I think it's it's I'm comfortable living with the paradox of both of those things being true. And when the Christian faith is founded on paradox, namely God with us, whatever that means, right? I, I think it's inescapable. We're already for, see the, the the entrance to all this is in a sense something that's incomprehensible and paradoxical. It's not rational. It's beyond rational capabilities, and that's that's why entering this as a child is our only option, you know, and then within that you work through things. So like you were saying before, you know, for how you think about the Bible, whether it's inspired or whatever, that's something you do as an insider already. That's not the gate you walk through. It's something you discover as you're living and breathing and thinking. Uh, you say that in, I think it's in, in the sin of certainty that grace grows best in winter. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's not my phrase. That's uh, Samuel Rutherford, a Puritan, uh, a Puritan theologian said that. But yeah, it is. I, I agree with that. It's a good phrase. Where, where, has, where, where have the significant winters for you been that you've seen you've, that have validated Rutherford's sentiment there? Well, yeah, I guess, I mean, like most people, it's <laughs> just sort of living and experiencing things and, uh, you know, th- Life happens unexpectedly, and there are little winters, and there are big winters. There are long, harsh ones, and there are shorter ones, but are still very cold. Um, from, you know, the bigger ones that I talk about in the sin of certainty have to do with just professional life and personal family life. Things basically quote falling apart all at the same time, mm-hmm. and what I mean by that is exactly the problem. This is people who know understand you know psychology will see. Oh yeah, well. Pete, here's your problem, just even the way you're talking about it. But uh, it it was things were falling apart because they were sort of out of control, right? And that's exactly the problem is when you try to control reality, whether it's other people or family or, 
or God, you know, just usually that doesn't go well. And, and so for me, it was the realization of this pattern that I, the psychological pattern, which has been with me most of my life, I guess, of the need to sort of put things in order and control the universe around me. Um, realizing that coming to a point where I had to let go of that, that was that, I guess, a winter time for me. Cause it was like, I'm out in the cold. I don't even know what to do. I I don't know how to live right now anymore because, um, you know, um, that's just the way I've always done things. Yeah. Is it like, I mean, is it fair to say that you early in your career, like your professional life, I mean, you're a scholar whose story was shaped by controversy and one in which there's probably, it it, it seems, you know, from, I, I never went to a place like Westminster. Um, I've read a lot of folks from there and if, learns a lot from a place like that but it seems like there's this really in a place like that there's a really close tie between belonging and believing mm-hmm. or so what i've learned from so many jewish friends is those things for them aren't aren't as closely linked right <laughs> whereas so is it I mean, <clears throat> is that part of the pain like this something that becomes almost familial and then because of questions asked and beliefs battered around all of a sudden you don't belong anymore Right. And I think that's part of it because belonging is so much tied up with really crossing the T's and dotting the I's on things that many, many, many thoughtful Christians throughout history of humanity have uh, have disagreed with. And, and there is no clarity to those things. So, I mean, you have to be careful because, you know, all, there are, you know, Christian Christianity is made up of multiple Christian traditions, ways of expressing the faith. And I'd say most of them, all of them, have tremendous strengths and things that they say very well, and other things maybe they don't say very well. But those traditions have a right to exist. And if you're going to be within a certain tradition, an institution, whether it's a church or a school, it's it's reasonable to expect people to sort of line up with a tradition. But the question is always who gets to define what that tradition is, because traditions are complex. You know, at Westminster there was the sort of stand firm, don't move narrative of the tradition, and within that tradition there's also the we have to move and expand our thinking and grow beyond our founders' version of the tradition. It's and the question really comes down to who has the authority and the power to shape and define the narrative for everyone else. Is the way you tell that story now, or, or at least to yourself, or how you think about how how your departure from Westminster unfolded? It, 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 do you how do you process the story differently now than when it happened? Or like you talk about how Israel processes the story differently, or, or the apostles process the story differently? Yeah. Do you find yourself processing it differently now than then? I, I don't know if I process it differently. Um... I might like think of things now and then differently, you know, like, um, you know, I wish I had been more present in the moment to say things that I think probably needed to be said, you know, but I wasn't really present even in my mind, knowing myself in the situation, what was happening at times. Um, you know, I wish that I had spoken truth differently uh, without being concerned about who agrees or who disagrees, you know, um, 
uh, you know, trying not to make people happy <laughs> as much because you, you just can't do that. But um, but by and large, processing. Now, I, I, I don't know. I mean, not a lot of time has passed. It's only been, you know, nine, ten years at this point. It's not a long time. But um, I think that, you know, the, the, the biggest thing and this is this was very much the case, you know, within a few months or a year of leaving that I'm very glad all that happened. Mm. I don't know. I don't want to think about what I would be like had I stayed there and kept driving deep down thoughts that I think are rather obvious to talk about, you know, um, as a biblical scholar, it's hard to be a biblical scholar in certain contexts because biblical scholarship tends to be somewhat exploratory and not, you know, firming up the fence around the yard. You know, we, we try to like open the gate and see what's out there. Um, so yeah. Anyway, I, I don't think I really process things differently, but I I do recall experiences and 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 ruminate about them. But you know, I guess the the biggest gift that I've had since uh, leaving is something that was ingrained in me before I even left by a, a, a friend of mine who had been through similar things in the past who said, you know, when you leave, don't look back. Mm. Don't don't keep reliving these these battles and. And, you know, I, w- I took that to heart. Before I left, I was prepared to, once I leave, I'm gone. I'm not going to keep returning in my mind and debating things and this and that. And I think, by and large, that's happened. And, and, and actually, when you get that distance, you realize how utterly dysfunctional that existence was for me. And how... I, why did I do that <laughs> you know, for so long? And that's, that's good. That's, that's a, I guess I would say that's enlightenment. That's, that's an understanding of a situation and, but you take it for what it is and you don't harbor things and you just keep moving on. And, and it's, it's a big world. So I've been reading this guy lately, Tom, Tomas Halik, who's a Czech psychotherapist who became a priest in Czechoslovakia behind Ooh. the Iron Curtain before you know, they, he went to an underground seminary. They were flying people like Charles Taylor and be able to teach this small group of seminaries. He's amazing. And he's written a, a couple of great books that, I, I mean, he's like kind of the missiological thinker for me right now. But he says that he has this book called uh, Patience with God, the Parable of Zacchaeus. And in it, he says that the problem he has with fundamentalism and atheism is that they seem, there are two forms of impatient faith. Mm-hmm. That that base that you yeah. have, to have and, he, and then he says in the ellipsis of the book it's great he's he's quoting this guy Adele Bastavros who's I found out was an Egyptian Coptic layperson lawyer but he says patience with others is love patience with self is hope patience with God is faith yeah that's a great way of putting it I agree with that and patience we're impatient when we want things to be ironed out so that we can go on with our lives with a sense of security, but that's actually a false security that doesn't exist. It's one we create and life doesn't work that way. And, and I think those, that, that, that desire, you know, the, the book, the sin of certainty, it's, it's not, it's not sinful to feel certain, but uh, what I mean by the title is that when you get to a point where things don't seem to be working out and your only thought is I need to get back to that safe place where everything is certain, that's the sin of certainty because we're actually selling this entire spiritual process short. It is about patience, that's, and that's a very good word to use, patience with God, with ourselves, and with others. And that's the serene way to live. 
and not one that's driven by fear, which usually results, you know, Yoda is right. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. If you're afraid, you don't not, you're not doing anybody any good. Yeah. Do you think that so much, you, you talk about how in, in the sin of certain, the churches are the riskiest place to be like authentic and honest. <laughs> Do you think that some of this is just normalizing temperament? Like in any community, right? There's probably mm-hmm. 10%, 12% of people that are just not wired as doubters. They, they, they like, you know, they're right. on the team and they, you know, they're not saying, uh, what's the minimum we have to believe to get in. They're saying, Oh, look at all these neat things I get to believe. There's probably like 12% that are resolute skeptics and they're still loyal to the community. They're just t- wired mm-hmm. as skeptics. And then, you know, the 80% is live in, in between those poles, depending mm-hmm. on life and experience It's part of the problem. We, we, we normalize the, the, the minority ends of the spectrum. Like, like, okay, well mm-hmm. this sort of temperament is the norm. And so unless you feel like this, or unless you convince us, you feel like this, you can't belong. Right. And I think that's a valuable lesson to, normalize the entire spectrum, not just one segment of it, which tends to be, you know, that 10% that doesn't question anything. They're just sort of there. And there are people like that, and they're not bad people. I don't know if I'd want them signing my paychecks necessarily, but they're not bad people, just like the the skeptics, the, the you know, let's call them agnostic Christians on the other end. They want to be a part of this, but they just got tons of questions because of how they're wired, because of their background, because of their experiences. They're not bad people either. You actually need each other to keep each other in check and honest, because either either one of those points of view, when it's not in conversation with diverse points of view, can just become absolutized. And I think any of those perspectives when absolutized is a problem. The problem is that it, it, having, you know, people who are wired for skepticism can't really understand why somebody never has any questions and vice versa. People who are wired to just, hey, this Christianity is a great thing. I just don't think about it that much. They're, they have a hard time understanding why somebody would have questions about absolutely everything all the time. You know, and that's that's sort of now you can get into New Testament stuff about loving those in the community who are different. You know, even for Paul, yeah, even for Paul, but you know, Jewish and Gentiles living together who had very different perspectives on what it means to follow Jesus. But you have to put those things to the side because there's a greater reality there. You say in the Bible tells me so. You talk about as you're narrating your own story how. You went to seminary without any intention of being a pastor, and this is probably a good thing for the whole Christian universe. Mm-hmm. As I finished that book, I I was surprised by that because yeah. you, I mean, I know you a little bit. We've had a few times. You strike me as a very pastoral soul, and I know that you work with undergrads, and I'm sure you yeah. spend a lot of time talking with them out, outside of class. I mean, that, that's just an interesting. Uh, yeah, I was interested when I read that because <laughs> so, well, I think it's pastoral. Yeah, but I th- I see I think I there's pastoral and then there's being a pastor, and I think they're not the same thing. I think being a pastor is, um, I, th- I think being pastoral is just being a kind Christian or trying to be to other people, where you give of yourself and all that. But I think, you know, pastor, as you know, is, is just, that's different. That's a whole different ball of wax. I, I don't know if I'd want to be a pastor responsible for each Sunday getting up and saying things that basically won't 
terribly upset people. In other words, it's hard to be a pastor and be skeptical. <laughs> yeah, Is it impossible? No, there are congregations that thrive on that. But by and large, the American church doesn't work well with pastors who are just frankly skeptical and wired that way, you know, and, and that's why, you know, I'm, I'm glad I'm not that I, I wouldn't, that's not for me. And, and for people who are pastors, I think it's fantastic. You know, it just, it's not something that I really want to do, but it doesn't mean that doesn't, you know, relieve me of the responsibility of being kind and decent to other people in a Christian sense. I, I interviewed this woman a few, a, a couple months ago, her name's Melissa Phoebos and she's a memoirist and a, Amazing person. Uh, I'd recommend her books. Uh, uh-huh. The latest one is Abandon Me, but she teaches writing. And, and, and she shocks. I mean, she had a really a lot of childhood kind of traumatic stuff. And and she meets her biological father who abandoned uh-huh. her early on. And he's a Christian. He was an addict then, and he went through recovery, and he's in an evangelical church. He actually goes to church with him and his wife, and they're the pastor is preaching on Jonah. And she, I mean, she wouldn't identify as a Christian, but she writes this about Jonah. Cause you talk about that Jonah a little bit in the Bible tells me so. Mm-hmm. She writes this after hearing, after thinking about the book as the pastor is preaching it. Jonah, whose name means dove is not brave. He simply exhausts all his other choices. The only thing left to choose is God's will. And even then after proclaiming his prophecy, Jonah shakes his fist at the Lord. His destiny does not give him peace. It enrages him. It's not what he wants. He begs God to kill him. But God doesn't kill Jonah. God's mercy often doesn't come in the form of erasure. And the story of Jonah seems a parable of what I've often suspected, that life is a great choose-your-own-adventure story. Every choice leads the hero to the same princess, the same cliff. There There are alternative routes, but there is only one ending if you make it there. Every love is a sea monster in whose belly we learn to pray. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, the, you talk a little bit about Jonah being this the story of how Israel deals with difference. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Just you know, to add to what he just read, it was you know at the end, um, Jonah basically has a temper tantrum. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the part that never quite makes into the vacation Bible school stories goes to Jonah, but um, but yeah, I, I see. I read Jonah as a story that that canonizes Israel's own struggle with outsiders and how God feels about them, um, as opposed to the book of Nahum, which is just a couple of books away, written at a different time, different place, different circumstances, which celebrates the fall of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, because you know Nineveh fell around 612 BC around there, and and you know the Assyrians were a tough crowd. You know they they world conquest. Uh, they didn't really do well with people who resisted. They tended to treat them very harshly. And most of Israel's monarchic history, the period of the monarchy, from about you know the mid 800s on to about 600 for about 250 years, was dominated by Assyrians. And and the Assyrian threat it shows up in most of the prophetic books. What do we do about the Assyrians? So, you know, when Assyria falls, there's a case for rejoicing in the book Nahum, which is written around the time of the fall of, of Nineveh. But Jonah, this is this is later. This is after the return from exile. And and oddly enough, they use uh, the, the author uses Nineveh as sort of the people he wants to talk about. Israel's 
arch enemies. You know, it's it's like think of any group today that has a history of of tension with other groups. And I mean, and not to be indelicate, but it might be something like, you know, uh, uh, Jews telling a story of Nazi Germany where the Germans are not the enemy that God wants to crush. Mm. Whereas if you're living in that time, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's what you're thinking, you know. And and so, you know, the book of Jonah is more reflecting on maybe what if what if God is not tribal? What if God actually cares about those people and wants them to repent, too? And, uh, you know, that that is something I, I think that experience was borne out for the Israelites in exile in Babylon, not Assyria, but in Babylon, where they came out and they tell the story using these old ancient enemies, the Assyrians, to tell the story of maybe a lesson learned that maybe God is not simply on our side. Maybe God is on the side of people we don't even like very much. Is know? that a word for today, too? I wonder, are we... It's, reality seems, especially in the United States, so tribal, right? If you are uh, a conservative, oh, we're becoming socialist. If you're a liberal, oh, it's a right-wing takeover. If you're a gun rights person, oh, they're taking all our guns. If you're a gun control person, oh, my gosh, the NRA runs the country. If you're a conservative Christian, oh, the liberals are taking over. If you're a liberal Christian, oh, America's so fundamental. Like, is, I mean, yeah. it seems like everybody feels like they're in exile. Yeah, there's insiders and outsiders, you know, still. And that's a hard question. You know, what do you do about that? I mean, is there never any such thing as an outsider? You know, the, the New Testament tends to try to break down some of those walls that are universal to humanity. But is the New Testament itself entirely successful? There are still insiders and outsiders. There are people who are in Christ and people who aren't, you know. So it, it is hard to know what to do about that. But I think it's healthiest that our tendency is to not think in terms of those groups that are social constructs that don't actually exist. We just make them exist because of our tribe that we belong to. And, uh, you know, part of, I think what Christians do in the world is to make people rethink some of those, um, in many cases, ancient walls of hostility, as Paul put it in his day, and and what do we do about them? And that's very hard. We, I mean, I, I see other people all the time, and there are a lot of other people out there, you know, and I, and I look at them, and, and I just, my instinct is to say they're different than I am. Even be a little bit afraid of them because they're different than you are. You know, that's, that's you know, we talk about humanizing and dehumanizing. That's very dehumanizing to think that way about other people. But it's so deeply ingrained in us. And I sometimes think, you know, somebody who's truly saved is somebody who doesn't think that way anymore. Yeah, I've heard Tim Keller once say that if you, he was asked, he was on Morning Joe at MSNBC, and Mike Barnacle said, what do you do with all this demonization? You know, that, you know, the unions demonize the corporations, corporations, you know, conservatives demonize government. And Keller said, yeah, well, I think if you, when you idolize, you have to demonize. Like if, if you make an yeah. idol of the free market, you have to demonize government. Or if you right. make an idol of, of what government can do for people, you have to demonize the market or you have to, so are they kind of flip sides of the same coin maybe? Right, exactly. They, they, they sort of box you into those sorts of moves. I mean, let me use language like Tom Wright might use when you have a false eschatology. When you have something, you know, eschatology doesn't mean like the end of the universe or something that we sometimes think. It's when, and the eschaton is when things are set right and where things are as they should be. 
And we all have these little visions in our mind about how things should be. And, you know, in America, it's like, I know, I don't know too many Americans who are thinking, you know, what's the next step for us? It's more like we have to tweak things, but basically what we have, the rest of the world should have too, right? A democracy, capitalist system, you know, plenty of wealth, you know, that country's not as wealthy as we are, so that we need to give them that, right? So uh, that that is an eschatology. That is a way of thinking like there is no step beyond this. We are it, right? And if you think that way, others are by definition not <laughs> the way they should be. I mean, that's that's the spirit behind you know colonization, uh, you know, from from the West for for gener- for, for centuries. Um, yeah, and it, if you have that ideology, if they have that eschatology, you will tend to demonize those who are not like that, and you almost have to, right? Because it isn't like we're it, but it's okay if you're the way you are. No, it's actually not okay if you're the way you are. You have to be like we are. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's in our day, that that is ISIS in a sense, right? You have to be the way we are. We will not tolerate outsiders. We'll kill outsiders, and the world needs to be we are because we're right. We're it. We, we we are the vision of what true life on this planet should look like. Hmm. You know, we just we just do it in the West in, in less obviously insidious ways, but we do similar kinds of things. If you were going to recommend a book on the Bible that you didn't write, that would be <coughs> that would be helpful to someone inside the church and outside the church. What would it be? Um, inside and outside, you're asking an awfully difficult question here, Scott. A book that makes everybody happy, or that makes many people think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you know. For example, uh, boy, um, so much comes to mind. I think you know John Levinson has a book, Sinai and Zion, which I've liked a lot, and it's basically an introduction to the theology of the Old Testament from a Jewish point of view. Why Sinai and Zion? Those are the two mountains that dominate Israel's landscape. Sinai, you know, Moses, and Zion, which is where Jerusalem is. There are two hills. And grasping those two concepts helps you understand sympathetically what the Hebrew Bible is trying to do. And I think that's a good thing for Christians to get a hold of as well. Um, Boy, uh, I mean, it's I hardly even know where to start. Uh, you know, a book that um, was influential to me and in just how I think about the Bible is uh, James Kugel Traditions of the Bible, which is a look at how early Jews and Christians interpreted the Bible in ways that are not modern Western ways, but creative ways from days of old. And that... I mean, to me, that's just a very eye-opening thing about how the Christian Bible even works. You know, the New Testament writers participate in this Jewish way of thinking about what texts are even there for, and they're meant to be augmented and and shaped. It's almost like a wax nose, right? And for me, that that's that's that could be a little bit, you know, maybe off-putting, but it's also very liberating to think. The Bible is something that we deal with creatively in our context, you know. We don't believe because of the Bible necessarily. We believe for a whole host of reasons. But then we come alongside this Bible and we now read it in light of our own experience. And, uh, you know, to me, that's that's sort of an exciting thing to think about. And oddly enough, it's ancient people that have taught me that, not modern people so much. Schleiermacher says, I mean, to paraphrase, something like, 
it's not Christian because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's Christian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which, yeah. which is subtle, but different. Yeah, right. I'm very different. Yeah, absolutely. Pete, thanks for spending some time with me. And where can, and uh, where do people, so people can find uh, the Bible for normal people. If you're normal, you can find it. Don't if you're normal. Ab- don't be abnormal. No, don't even show up. If you're abnormal, just keep away. Uh, you can find me at PeteEnds.com. And that's my website. And uh, is that an expensive domain name to get? No, <laughs> it's, nobody has that. Actually, I wanted Peter Ends. I'm glad it's Pete, but it's Peter. But some some person by my name has that all that stuff. Like I will I'm, never ever get ScottJones.com. I mean, it's just I right. have to resign myself to the fact. It's that not going to happen. It's never right. going to happen. So you got Scott Kent Jones? Is that what yeah, you had to do? That's that's it. There's nobody out there with that same name. Uh, not that I have. There can only be one. It's like Highlander. I be, beheaded them all. Thank Goodness. Thank goodness. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, my website and you know, Twitter and Facebook, I'm easy enough to find in those uh in those venues. And yeah, you know, my website has my books and where I'm speaking and I blog and you know, we're starting to sort of put our podcasts up there as well. Uh so yeah, that's sort of the go to place. And be happy people came by and hung out. Pete, thanks so much for talking. You bet, Scott. Thanks for having me. See ya. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And please do check out Pete's new podcast, The Bible for Normal People. Until next time, fare thee well. And thanks again for listening. <laughs>